So we're still in 1 Corinthians. So if you will, open to 1 Corinthians 1. Because we have so many passages to cover tonight, I'm not going to be able to go into a whole lot of detail on all of them. But I think they're fairly self-explanatory and they really explain each other. It's essentially the Bible interpreting the Bible, which is always the best way to do it. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is where we'll begin. Let's just pray once more and ask God's blessing on our time together. Our gracious Father and our God, as we come before the throne of your grace, we do ask that you will help each one of us to set aside any distractions, any uh, intruding thoughts of life and the daily grind and, and uh, all of the things that are going on around us and help us clear the decks of our mind and just be ready to receive what the Spirit has to give us tonight. I pray that you'll make your word come alive. I pray that God the Holy Spirit will plant the seed of truth deep in our souls so that by the renewing of the mind, we can be more and more conformed to the marvelous character and image of your Son and our Savior. This is the real reason that we're gathering together here. So bless our time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight we are going to look at the doctrine of carnality because unfortunately it's something that most Christians know nothing about. Carnality, of course, is the opposite of spirituality. And at any given moment of time, we are either carnal or spiritual. That is, if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, those who are without Christ... Uh, obviously are living in the power of the sin nature all the time. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I just want to review a passage that we looked at last week where Paul says in verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be <clears throat> no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions or divisions among you. Now I say this, <coughs> each of you says, <coughs> I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, Cephas being Peter, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. So we saw that uh, one of the initial problems we run into in this church, and last week we looked at the first nine verses, and we saw what a tremendously blessed church they were. They had all kinds of tremendous spiritual provisions and privileges and yet, with all that they had, they were hindered by the fact that they were carnal. And of course, all of the other problems that come out in the book, I gave you a list of the problems that are going to crop up. <clears throat> they are rooted in this problem of carnality. So we need to understand what carnality is all about. And Paul actually picks up on that theme, if you'll just 
turn the page and go to 1 Corinthians 3. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but to carnal as to babes in Christ. Among those who are believers, who have received the gift of eternal life, who have trusted in Christ, there are only two kinds. Let's back up and say, in the world, there are only two kinds of people. There are those who have eternal life, and there are those who don't. There are the saved and the lost, just like on the Titanic. When the Titanic went down, there were rich people, poor people, high class, low class, all kinds of people. But when the Titanic went down, there were only two kinds of people, those that were saved and those that were lost. The world is the same way. But when we bring it into the realm of those who belong to Christ, there are two kinds of people. There are those who are carnal and those who are spiritual. <clears throat> and unfortunately, because these terms too often are not defined, People think they're spiritual when really they're not. So we need to clarify what is biblical spirituality. Uh, if I am talking to a Christian and they say I'm a very spiritual person and I ask them, what is it that makes you spiritual? I will know immediately whether they understand what they're talking about or not. Because they'll either come up with their own idea or they're going to nail it down as the scripture nails it down. So in 1 Corinthians 3, I could not speak to you as to spiritual but to carnal. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. In other words, I was giving you simple basic doctrine and not advanced teaching. For until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you still are not able. This is a tremendous condemnation to a local church. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? When one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? I like to throw this up whenever I run into someone who tells me he's a Calvinist, and I say, you're not only a Calvinist, you're carnal. Well, that really gets, you know, the, the hackles up on them, and I bring them to this passage, and it's really very, very clear. What do we mean when we talk about being carnal? I'm going to give you the definition of the Greek word, Sarkikos, or sarkinos, same thing, means belonging to this world not under the control of God's Spirit relating to material things. Okay, belonging to this world not under the control of God's Spirit relating to material things. If I go to the linguistic key of the Greek New Testament, it has this to say about this particular word. The word means fleshly or made of flesh. Words having this ending denote an ethical or a dynamic relationship of one thing to another. Flesh is the outlook oriented toward self. You know, we often point out that the central letter of sin is I. The central letter of pride is I. That's the essence of this word, sarkinos, that he uses here. Uh, flesh is the outlook that is oriented toward self, that which pursues its own ends, its own desires in self-sufficient independence of God. So that gives you a little bit of a definition of the word that Paul is using here. When we have a Christian whose chief focus is, what do I get out of it? How do I benefit? 
I want what I want, we realize that we're dealing with a carnal person, that which relates to the flesh. Now, why does it relate to the flesh? I mean, this, this old body has run me a long, long time. It's, you know, it's doing pretty good. What's wrong with the flesh? Well, we have to understand flesh the way that Paul's using it. So we go to our third passage, which is in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. By the way, as we go along, because we are covering a lot, if there's something that is not clear to you, <coughs> feel free to shoot your hand up and I will explain. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Key passage, very important passage. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, is in view here, sin entered the world and death through sin. Thus death spread to all men because all sinned. When we talk about sin, we have to understand that we are sinners three different ways. First, we have imputed sin. That is the sin of Adam. The human race is separated from God, not based on what we've done, but based on what he did. This is what Paul, all of this is contained in this one verse. Imputed sin. We bear the sin of Adam. Now we might ask, why is that and is it fair? Well, it's because of inherent sin. And inherent sin means passed down. You'll remember in Genesis chapter uh, five, after Cain kills Abel, it says, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she bore him a son in his likeness, in his image. That's a very, very important point right there. In what way did Adam transfer not the image of God, which remains, but it's unfortunately marred, in what way did he transfer his own image? Well, he's now a fallen being. And he passed on that fallen condition, that fallen state, which makes us a sinner. Remember that we are born sinners. We are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. Why is that? Inherent sin. We have within our DNA, within our genetic makeup, what Paul calls the flesh. He's referring to that tendency, that proneness, that inclination to sin. And because of this, and this is the proof of the first two, we have personal sins. Why do we sin? Because we have a sin nature. Why do we have a sin nature? Because Adam sinned. We can follow it all the way back. So this is what Paul is laying down here in Romans chapter 5. The sin nature passed down from Adam is what the Bible is referring to as flesh. And when Paul speaks to the Corinthians and he says you are carnal, what he's accusing them of is that they are living their lives under the power of the sin nature. They are not living their lives under the power of the Spirit of God. Okay? Let's move on to Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, we, we see both the solution and the, we could call it the inner war, which we're going to get to in just a moment. Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? 
In other words, if, if all of us are sinners, what can we conclude? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If God's grace always surpasses any amount or any level of sin, well, let's sin all the more and grace is all the greater. That's the idea that he's building on. Verse 2, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You say, well, I don't think I died to sin. Well, hang with us here for a minute. Verse 3, do you not know? By the way, whenever Paul says to Christians, do you not know, it's a rebuke. It's either a rebuke to them or a rebuke to their teachers because their teachers didn't teach them. Are you still ignorant is basically what it means. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. The baptism Paul's talking about here is not water baptism. It, it, it always gets frustrating for people. You know, there are people that can't see the word baptism without thinking water baptism. There are seven baptisms in the New Testament. Seven different unique baptisms. The one that he's talking about here is the one that takes place by the power of the Holy Spirit when a sinner, the guy over here, looks to Christ in faith, God the Holy Spirit takes him and unites him with the person of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Why is that important? What did he do in his death? He paid the penalty for sin once for all. By being united with him, what does that mean in relation to my sins? They're paid for. They're all covered. Burial separated him from the world. So now I've died to the sin nature as far as its control, its dominion over me. I am separated from the world. That's what the word sanctified means. And resurrection means that I have received his own life, which is eternal life. To be united with Jesus Christ takes us out of Adam. Remember what 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says? In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. How do we get in Adam? We're born. We're born in Adam. How do we get in Christ? We're born again. So if you've only been born once, you're going to have to die twice. You're going to die physically, and you're going to die eternally in separation from God. It's called the second death. But if you get born twice, physically and spiritually, you can only die once, and that's physically. We all still together? Still making sense, hopefully? This is God's solution to this. God solved this problem by uniting us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So, <clears throat> Paul goes on in Romans 6, if you'll skip up to verse 12. Therefore, do not let, I want you to put a little emphasis on that word let. It means to give permission to. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign. You can't get it out of your body. It's there. It's a part of your makeup. But he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Verse 13, you say, well, how do I let that happen or how do I not let it happen? Well, he tells us in verse 13, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So it kind of brings us to the point where we realize we've got a decision to make. And it's not one decision, it's a decision that we make over and over and over every single day. Every decision we make, the question is, what is my motive? Am I motivated for self or am I surrendering myself to serve those around me? If I present my members like, here I am, take me and use me, to the sin nature, guess what happens? Sin reigns in our mortal body. If I present my members, eyes, ears, mouth, hands, feet, mind, to God and say, here are my members, take them and use them, he'll do it. He will use them for his honor and for his glory. So do not allow sin to reign. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. By the way, the word present has the idea of making an offering. You know, we make a lot of offerings. We give a little to people that are down and out, or, you know, we give offering in church, and there are a lot of different kinds of offerings, but the one that is most crucial, <coughs> excuse me, I've been battling a sinus infection since last week. I was teaching last week at the conference with the inside of my head was on fire. Excuse me. So I'm still a little bit under the weather. <coughs> I'll get over this sooner or later. So verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. We just sang about it. <coughs> Standing in grace. Well, the problem is we can choose to stand in grace or we can choose to step out of grace, outside of its provisions, outside of its power. That's a choice that we have to make. And that brings us to inner warfare, which leads us to Romans chapter 8. <coughs> Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you will have another line there that says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Most likely, this line was lifted by a copyist from verse 4. The verse should end, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Once we trust Jesus Christ, all sin, past, present, and future, has been totally removed. We are free from condemnation. But notice where he goes next. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The sin nature that once had dominion over my life, its dominion now is broken. It's still there. 
it's one illustration I heard a pastor use one time. It's like a guy that's married uh, to a really horrible, horrible woman, and somewhere along the way they get a divorce, and he remarries a wonderful, gracious, lovely lady, uh, and then he starts thinking back to the number one and starts thinking about going back under number one. Why in the world would you do that? But we do it all the time because we don't understand the danger of living to self. So he says, what the law could not do, this is verse 3, in that it was weak through the flesh, I mean 2,000 years of history from, or 1,500 years from the time of Moses to the time of Christ, proved fairly conclusively that the law couldn't keep people from sinning. It doesn't have the power. It can tell you what to do, but it can't enable you to do it. That's the problem. So the law was weak through the flesh, but God did what the law couldn't do by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, and He condemned or judged sin in the flesh. Notice that He keeps connecting the idea of sin with the idea of flesh. Again, flesh is a reference not so much to this physical body as to the genetic makeup which contains the sin nature. Sin lives in our body. So he condemned sin in the flesh that, here's the purpose clause, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, and here's the key, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who walk according to the flesh, the Bible calls carnal. Those who walk according to the Spirit, the Bible calls spiritual. So the person who says, I'm a spiritual person because I pray three times a day, I go to church every Sunday, uh, I give a tithe to the church, and on and on and on, none of those things can make you spiritual. If I ask someone, why are you spiritual? And they say, because I submit to the filling of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> I know they know what they're talking about. The Spirit of God lives in me. I am surrendering to the leadership and the power of God the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get to that as we keep looking through these verses. We're moving from carnality to spirituality. How do we distinguish the two? Now, <clears throat> we might ask the question, so what is it really that makes a person carnal? If Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we are not to let the, spirit, the uh, flesh control us. We are not to allow sin to dominate our life. First of all, how do we do that? And secondly, how do we not do it? Well, he's going to tell us. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Now, the Bible talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're told in 1 John 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of those things is exactly what he's talking about. When I set my mind on those things, that's what's going to come out. I am going to live a carnal life. I'm going to be under the control of my own self-centered sin nature. You know, it's a tragedy, but you see people, and if you study people, 
as I study people, you see people who go through their whole lives scratching and biting and fighting and scraping to get ahead, and they're never happy and they're never content. And I've known people that have had millions of dollars and they're miserable because they don't have enough. And you know what? I've known people who were pretty well off and then lost everything they had and it didn't affect them at all. I've known in my own lifetime at least two, maybe more, uh, but at least two that come to my mind, people that were millionaires and they lost it all and became poor. They were happy people, joyful people, because their security, their happiness was not in what they had, not in the kind of house they lived in, the kind of clothes they could wear, whatever. There's nothing wrong with having a nice home. There's nothing wrong with having nice clothes. There's something wrong with not being able to be happy if you haven't got them. That's the carnality that he's talking about. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Why are we here tonight? We're here tonight to set our mind on spiritual things. Every single day when we wake up in the morning, as soon as our eyes come open and we start thinking, we begin operating either in a carnal or a spiritual way of life. We start choosing what I'm going to set my mind on. And folks, this can happen. <clears throat> All you have to do is study Peter. Remember when Peter was with Jesus up in Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon and and uh, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're one of the prophets, you know, and so on and so forth. And then he asked the critical question. This is a question each one of us has to answer. Who do you say I am? Peter answered correctly, didn't he? Mm -hmm. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjon. Was Peter spiritual at that moment? Absolutely. Blessed are you, for your Father in heaven revealed this to you. He was under the control of God. He was under the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He was thinking right. And then Jesus said, oh, by the way, uh, in a few days I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested, beaten, and crucified. And Peter said, no, Lord. That's a great one, isn't it? No, Lord. Those two words don't go together. No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. How long does it take to go from spiritual to carnal? Well, a verse, a moment. You can be going along and someone says or does something that ticks you off. I'll tell you, I think the devil invented cars because when you get a car and get out on the road, it's the greatest battle of my life is to stay in the spirit when I'm on the road. It is a struggle, I have to admit that. Is it and just because um, he said to get behind me, Satan, because he knew he had to go to the cross to save us? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and Peter was playing the role of Satan. Remember, the word Satan simply means adversary. I don't think he was necessarily calling Peter the devil, but I think what he was saying is, you're doing the devil's bidding. And do you remember what he said after that? Get behind me, Satan. You're essentially what he said, your mind is not set on the things of God, but the things of man. Right what we've got here. Just in that moment of time. 
he shifted his attention. All right, let's go on. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded, what's carnally minded? Mindset. We set our mind on the things of the flesh. To be carnally minded is death. Now, this is kind of another topic. The Bible uses the word death in a, a whole range of different ways. This does not mean that the minute you become carnal, you're going to die. It does not mean that when you become carnal, you lose your salvation. What it does mean is that in relationship to the things of God, you're unable to function. You cannot operate in that realm. You are dead to that realm because of your carnal mindset. To be spiritually minded, he says, is life and peace. The hardest thing we face as Christians is to let go of me being on the throne of my life. I want to run my life. I want to make my decisions. I want to get what I want. And the hardest thing to do is to say, I'm going to live my life to the best of my ability to submit to the Spirit of God, to obey the Word of God, and to live in service to those around me. Amen. James is what we dealt with in James chapter 2. If a brother or sister is destitute and without daily food, and you say to them, hey, I'll pray for you. God bless you. I hope he'll provide for you. But you don't provide what they need. Your faith is dead. That's exactly what he's talking about here. Verse 7, the carnal mind is hostility or enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. It is impossible for the sin nature to submit to God. Can't happen. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, if we are operating in the power of the sin nature, then it's going to be impossible for us to please God. All right, that leads us to, that illustrates for us the spiritual struggle. Uh, I should go on. Uh, verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. <clears throat> if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Meaning simply that every single believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. That's why he calls it a mortal body. The body is dead because of sin. My body is going to die. Your body is going to die. That is the way of all flesh. Why? Well, death came with the sin of Adam. But he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit of God dwelling inside of the believer. We get to our target. This is the body. Here we have the soul. And here we have the Spirit. This part doesn't exist in an unbeliever. They're spiritually dead. This part is what's created when we believe in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is the creation? The creation is what Paul calls the new man, the spirit in which 
the Holy Spirit dwells. Why is this necessary? Because the Holy Spirit can't live in a garbage dump. I could use stronger language. I could use a stronger analogy. The Holy Spirit cannot live in a trash heap. The Holy Spirit only inhabits our body because He dwells in the holy place called the human spirit. That new creation. Uh, if you want to look sometime in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, I forget the exact reference. I think Ephesians 4, 21, 20, 24. We're going to get there pretty soon. He talks about the fact that the human spirit is created in righteousness and <clears throat> holiness of the truth. Created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So while it may be a bit of a bummer to think that our DNA is genetically modified, if you will, to sin, there's another side of that coin that is pretty exciting, and that is to think that when you trusted Christ as your Savior, God created something in you that is perfect and holy and can never be contaminated by sin. I hope you got what I just said. You remember the passage in John, I think it's in 1 John 3, forget the exact verse. That which is born of God cannot sin. And pastors have used that to beat people over the head for centuries because they say, if you're sinning, you haven't been born of God. And I just look right back at them and say, you're a sinner too, so don't point fingers. What's John actually talking about? He's talking about the new creation. That new creation, that new man can't sin. You know what happens when you and I step out of fellowship with God and develop a carnal mindset? God the Holy Spirit closes off the human spirit. It's sealed off. Nothing can get in, nothing can get out. It's the Holy of Holies. We sin with the body, we sin with the soul, mind, if you will. You cannot sin from your human spirit. It's incapable of sin, it cannot sin, and it can't even be touched by sin. And that's why we need to understand the fallacy of those who say that if you sin as a Christian, or if you continue in sin as a Christian, or if you die in sin as a Christian, you've lost your salvation. Nothing changes the work that God does at the moment of salvation. The new creation is created for eternity. Eternal life dwells in that human spirit. Okay? So... Let's move on to another passage. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And here's the dilemma. So we see that we are born physically with a sinful nature. We see that we are reborn by faith in Christ with a spiritual nature. And those two, never the twain shall meet. They are as opposed to each other as anything can be. Light years apart. <clears throat> we see that we have decisions that we have to make. Do not let sin reign. Do not present your bodies to sin, but present yourselves to God. We have decisions that we have to make. 
How do we make those decisions? How are we able to overcome the inertia of sin in our life? Well, Ephesians 4 is going to help us. Ephesians 4.1 I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. The word worthy in the Greek is oxios, and it means to balance. It's a picture of the old scales when they would put something on each side and it would balance out. So what are we trying to balance? We're trying to balance our position in Christ, which is, you know what your position in Christ is? Seated in the heavenlies. Seated in the heavenlies, perfect, righteous, as righteous as Christ himself. Imputed with the righteousness of Christ. That's our position. That's way down here. And then up here we have our practice. The whole Christian life is seeking to bring a balance between our position in Christ and our practice. And in our whole life, it's going to be up and down, up and down, up and down. It's going to be in fellowship with God, out of fellowship when that driver cuts you off at the light. Right? And then what do you do? Well, you have to deal with that. That distraction that comes into your mind, that stuff that comes up whenever you, you know, you can't go on a computer without being bombarded by the world that's out there. The glitz of the world, the glamour of the world, the whatever, you see it all. You know, you click and there it is and you have to click off to get away from it. I don't know if you heard this. The left has come out with an accusation against Mike Johnson. You hear that? Mm -hmm. Mike Johnson's a new speaker of the house. He's a Christian, very outspoken Christian. And they found something. They they searched and dug until they found something they could smear him with. You know what it is? He doesn't watch porn. He is abnormal, they say. Because he actually belongs to a website that deletes out all the trash. And because of that, he's unfit to lead our country. That shows you where they are. So Paul says here in Ephesians 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you're called. Walking worthy is the goal. He goes through uh, a lot in the chapter. I don't have time to be able to uh, cover all of that. But if you will just drop down. In verse 17 to 19, he talks about uh, the danger of walking as the Gentiles walk. In other words, living the way that we used to live in our old unsaved life. And then he says in verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. This is not what you learned about Christ. If indeed you have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And the thing I hope every time you go to a Bible class, every time you come here, I hope that you're not being taught by me. I hope you're being taught by the Master Himself. He needs to be speaking through me, and He can only speak through me as I stick to the truth of this book. You can only hear Him if you come under the guidance and the filling of the Holy Spirit so that you have what Jesus called ears to hear. It's not the physical ears that make a difference. It's the spiritual receptiveness by faith. I believe this is the Word of God. I want to hear it, and I want to live by it. All right? So you have been taught by Him. What have we been taught? He's going to tell us. Verse 22. 
that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. I don't know if you're aware of this, but your sin nature has been getting worse since the day you were born. It's been getting worse. You know, when, you, when we function in the sin nature, and we all do it at times, <clears throat> have you ever shocked yourself with how much evil can be in your mind or in your dreams or uh, enter into your thoughts? And it's like, man, I didn't think I was that corrupt. Well, the sin nature can only degenerate. It can only grow more and more corrupt. So he says, put off the old man, the former conduct, and verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's what we're doing right now. Remember the mindset on the flesh? What are we always thinking about? Making more money, climbing the social ladder, beating out somebody I'm in competition with, looking better than someone else, getting more praise than someone else. When our mind is set on that, that's, that's what controls us. When our mind is set on the truth of God's Word, this is one reason why it's a good idea to just post little verses around your house. You look up and you see a verse and you reflect on that verse. You may have seen it 10,000 times. It doesn't matter. It's always new. And it's always fresh because it's always needed every day. Put off the former conduct. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 24, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The human spirit created at the moment of salvation is perfect, sinless, holy, and it cannot be touched by sin. That's one of the reasons we know that we are secure in Christ. So what's the put off and put on? Well, tonight I came because it's a little bit chilly out and I had a vest on. And if I am wearing this nice warm fleece vest and someone walks up to me and vomits all over me, pretty good picture of the sin nature. I could use other illustrations, but I'll spare you. What am I going to do? I'm going to take it off. I'm going to take it off and I'm going to wash. And then I'm going to put on something that's clean. The words that he uses here, put off and put on, are words for taking off a cloak and putting on a cloak. I'm driving down the street and that idiot that seems to follow me around <laughs> pulls in front of me or stalls me through the light or whatever he does. He's always there. He drives a different car every day. <laughs> but he's always there. Right? Well, he's not following you. And I get out of fellowship and I'm saying, you crazy idiot, who taught you how to drive and so on and so forth? And I stop myself and I say, wait a minute, I just vomited all over myself. I need to put that away. It's a mental exercise of saying those words, those thoughts, those actions need to be put aside. I am going to go before the Father and ask Him for a good cleansing and I'm going to put on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's essentially what it boils down to. But we might need a little help in understanding how to do that. So turn with me to the book of Galatians. Back one book from Ephesians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. 
verse 16. Interestingly, it's in the context of verse 15 of believers biting and devouring one another and consuming one another. Slander, gossip, maligning, all of those things. Verse 16, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now this is very, very important. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, the idea of lust here meaning that they are in contention and competition, uh, the Bible talks about our God being a jealous God, like a jealous lover. He loves us with an unfathomable love, and He wants us for Himself. He doesn't want us betraying Him and committing what the Bible calls spiritual adultery. So there's this conflict going on. But He says in verse 18, If you are led by the Spirit of God, you are not under the law. Why not under the law? Because who was the law written for? Israel. We know that the law was written for lawbreakers, trespassers, all of those things. Well, if we're under grace, we don't have to contend with trying to appease the law or please the law. All we have to do is receive the provisions of God's grace, which is His cleansing, which takes the problem completely away, and we're restored to fellowship. The Spirit of God takes His seat on the throne of our life, and He begins to lead us through life. To walk in the Spirit or be led by the Spirit, we have to be filled by the Spirit. I should have, we should have looked at Ephesians 5.18 while we were there. I'm sure all of you know it. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. That's worldliness. It doesn't say there's anything wrong with drinking. Whether you choose or choose not to, that's not the issue. That's personal for you. <clears throat> the problem is drunkenness. Why? Because drunkenness means I'm under the control of something other than the Spirit of God. <coughs> Be filled by the Spirit of God. That's the point. So if we are walking in the Spirit and led by the Spirit, we have the power to put off and put on. Make sense? So We're not done yet. We're still... One question real quick. So it's not just enough to put off. No, putting off... Because you still have to put on. Yeah, yeah. You can... You, and going back to the definition of spirituality... I use this, you know, it's an old illustration from long ago, but spirituality in a lot of churches is we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't date the girls that do. <laughs> All of their spirituality is based on not doing something. That's not spirituality. I don't go to the movies. I don't play cards. You know, I grew up in the 70s. If girls had a skirt that was above their knees, they were a harlot. It was unbelievable. Women were not supposed to, in churches, were not supposed to wear any kind of pantsuit because those are men's clothes and that made them a transvestite. Believe it or not, Christianity was that weird back in the 70s. So you don't do all these things. Don't go here, don't go there, don't do this, don't do that. I'm spiritual, no. You put off, but you didn't put on. And until you put on, you're not under the power of the Holy Spirit. So once again, how can I put on? I'm trying to make this as easy as I can for you. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2. Just about done. Just bear with me a little bit longer. 
2 Timothy 2. All of these passages are essentially talking about the same thing. <coughs> 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's the putting off. Verse 20, he uses an analogy. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and vessels of silver, but also of wood and clay some for honor and some for dishonor. You can use your imagination a little bit, think of what it would have been like living in those times, and you can probably figure out what some of those vessels were used for. Some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone, and here comes the personal responsibility, cleanses himself from the latter, that is dishonor. If anyone cleanses himself he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master prepared for every good work. Think of this human spirit as a vessel. I use this illustration a lot in third world countries because it makes it simple for them to understand. I take a cup and I pick up some dirt out in the yard and I pour a little dirt in and let them watch me do this and then I take a bottle of water and I pour water in it and I stir it around and I say, anybody want to drink? Oh, no, no, we would never drink that. Why would you not drink it? Because it's filthy. Oh, well, yeah, that's probably right. Pour it out, fill the cup with fresh water. Anybody want to drink? They go, no. I say, why not? I got rid of the bad and I filled it up with good and they said, you didn't wash it, right? So I pour water in, I swish it around, I wash it out, I fill it. Anybody want a drink? Yeah, they'll all have a drink. What is this passage telling us? It's our responsibility to determine whether we are a fit vessel or not. We have to make sure that the vessel is clean so that the Spirit of God has the freedom. People say, well, how can I be filled with the Spirit? Very simple. Be a pure vessel, He'll fill you. You don't have to do anything about it. He automatically will fill a clean vessel. Okay, well, that's good. How can I get clean? Well, you pour out the bad, give it a good scrubbing, and then fill it with that which is good. Well, that doesn't completely... Explain it all to me, so turn with me to 1 John 1 9. First John chapter 1. Let me read verse 7 first, because here's the ideal. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, what's the light, by the way? It's the word of God. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses. The cleansing there is a continuous action. It keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So you say, well, that's great. If we walk in the light, but what happens when I don't walk in the light? What happens when I step out of the light into the darkness? 
Well, God has a solution for that. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 31? You might want to jot those two down. When he's talking about the celebrating the Lord's Supper and he wants them to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the filling of the Spirit, he said, if a man examines himself first, then let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For, verse 31, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. If I judge myself, God doesn't have to judge me. I think you'd agree you'll go easier on yourself than he would, right? How do I judge myself? I judge myself by examining myself. So what happens if I examine myself and I find things out of order? 1 John 1, 9. I go to the Father and I say, Father, I had horrible thoughts about that guy that just cut me off out there on the street. And I wanted to, I've, I've told Nan many times, I wish cars today were like bumper cars. When I was a kid, we used to go to a place called Joyland in Wichita, Kansas. And Joyland had bumper cars. That was the only thing I wanted. Get me in a bumper car and turn me loose and let me... And I think if they would just make cars with a great big thing around them that was kind of spongy, but still enough that you could just bump somebody off the road, wouldn't that be awesome? That'd be great. What was that reference? That first reference you gave? Uh, What's that? First Corinthians, chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight and thirty-one. So when we examine ourselves and we find, and and there's a little hidden gem here in verse. 1 John 1, 9. The little hidden gem is this. So if I examine myself and I remember getting out of fellowship at that guy out on the street, but I did a whole bunch of other stuff wrong before that, and I don't remember it. So I go to the Father and I say, Father, forgive me for getting out of fellowship over that guy out there on the street, and I've got a whole string of other stuff. Notice what it says. If we confess our sins, that is the ones that we know, the ones that come to our mind. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everything that I don't remember, everything I should have confessed but didn't, and now it slipped from my mind and I couldn't recall it if I had to. God keeps the books and he knows all of it and he pours out complete and total cleansing on me. If I confess my sins, he cleanses me and therefore I become a vessel that the Holy Spirit can use. I don't have to ask him to fill me. He automatically fills a clean vessel. He's going to do it. And I can rise up and go out knowing I am now walking in the power of the Spirit and I don't want to lose that. I want to stay (coughs) in fellowship with God. I want to live my life in agreement with God. Do you remember Jesus in the upper room? First lesson he taught the disciples of several really powerful lessons in the upper room was, you guys need foot washing. And why did he do that? Because Luke tells us that when the disciples entered the upper room, they had an argument going on. 
And what was the argument all about? Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And guess what? They all voted for themselves. That's called carnality. And so when they entered the upper room, there was a basin and a towel sitting there. And whenever there was not a household servant, and I believe Jesus made the arrangements ahead of time not to have that servant there. I do not want the foot washing servant there. You know, walking down the streets in old Jerusalem after the donkeys and the camels and the sheep, your feet are going to just be horrible. So they walk in. There is no question that they saw the basin. There's no question that they saw the towel. And there's no question that they knew socially you do not enter a house without clean feet because you're tracking the muck of the street into the house. And I can just picture Peter looking at John going, you gonna wash my feet or not? John turns and looks at Andrew and, you know, come on, get with it. None of them would do it, so what do they do? They all go to the table. Jesus comes in and puts them all to shame because he stooped to the lowest position of a slave to wash the feet. <clears throat> but remember what he said to Peter. When he came to Peter, Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. He said, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That word part, meros, means partnership. If I don't wash you, you have no partnership. We are not in fellowship, Peter. So Peter, being the blustery loud mouth that he was. Well, give me a bath then. Wash me all over. What Jesus say to him? These are all spiritual lessons. He who is bathed only needs to wash his feet. The bathe means salvation. The foot washing is confession. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been thoroughly bathed. But as you walk through the muck of this world, there is a need for a spot bath. And that's what confession does. There are three things we need to examine ourselves about. Mental attitude sins, the thoughts that we think, verbal sins or sins of the tongue, the things that we say, and overt sins, the things that we do. If we examine ourselves and confess our sins, we will be a vessel of honor that the Master can use. And you know what? Early on in our Christian life, we confess and then we fall down. And then we confess and we fall down. And the more you keep at confessing, you know, confession, the word confession means omologeo. It means to say the same thing God says. You know, we don't call adultery a dalliance. We don't call murder a slip of the finger on the trigger. We call them what God calls them. This is what they are and they're hateful to God. And therefore, we acknowledge those things to God. <clears throat> he does the cleansing. But when he cleanses us, we are restored to fellowship. The Spirit of God takes control, and we're able to rise up and do exactly what John says in verse 7, walking now in the light. If I've confessed and I trust that the Spirit of God is in control, I have a power working in me I never had before. I can't, in my own strength, obey God's Word. Remember what he said in John 15, 10? You are my friends if 
you do what I command you. I can't. Paul teaches us that in Romans chapter 7. The things I know I should do, I don't do. The things I know I shouldn't do, that's what I always end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What is the body of death? It's the indwelling sin nature. And what he's saying is, I can't deliver myself. But he answers his own question, doesn't he? Thank God through Jesus Christ, the same one that went to the cross, the same one that died for me, the same one that paid the penalty for my sins, is sitting on high waiting for me to come to him in honest, humble confession and say, Father, I have sinned. Another illustration, if you want to know how important this lesson I'm teaching tonight is, the prodigal son. There he is in the pig pen. He started out having a grand old time. Sin always works that way. It's a blast when you get into it. But it always leads to the same end. There you are in the pig pen, starving, covered with muck, surrounded by a bunch of oinking, stinking hogs. And it says he came to himself. And he said to himself, self, I will get up and I will go to my father. And then he starts going through the groveling of saying, and I'll tell him that I'm not even worthy to be his servant, but if he'll make me one of his lowest slaves. And you know what? We do the same thing sometimes when we confess, and it really dishonors God because it says he's not really as great and his love is not really as great as he says it is. When the prodigal son came back, what was the father doing? Looking for him afar off. God stands by waiting for us to just humble ourselves enough to say, I did it again. I did it again. I fell down again, Father. And he, you know what he says? You came back home. No problem. When the prodigal comes home, he starts into his spiel, and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The father cuts him off. The rest of his speech never gets spoken. Why? He made confession. Nothing else needs to be said. What's the father say? put the best robe on him, put my ring, which is basically my bank account, access to my bank account, put the sandals of service on his feet, kill the fatted calf, let's have a party. You know, God loves to party. Did you ever notice? I think it's in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is at a party, I think, 16 times. He loved to party. It was one of the things the Pharisees hated about him. He loved to get together with people and have a great time, and it must have been wonderful for those people to be around him. And I keep saying this. Why did the thieves, the harlots, the publicans, why did they all flock around him? Those kind of people don't flock to self-righteous people, do they? They don't flock to people that put them down. They don't flock to people that act better than them. You know why they flock to him? You couldn't come into his presence without knowing that he loved you. You couldn't look in his eyes without knowing this man loves me. And he just welcomed them all in, and the party began. And, of course, the Pharisees had fits about it because look at this man eating and drinking with sinners. He is a glutton and a drunkard. I think if our churches were a little more like Jesus Christ, more sinners would flock into our churches. I really believe that. Well, believe it or not, I have other passages I could go to, but I'm going to end with just one. 
if I'm in fellowship and then I fall, and I get back in fellowship and then I fall, and I get back in fellowship and I fall, what can I do? The answer is simple. I'm going to give you two passages. I'm not going to turn to them. Write them down. Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. The author of Hebrews, I believe it to be Paul, rebukes them because he said, by this time you guys ought to be teachers and you need someone to teach you again. You are like babies needing milk. You're not strong enough for meat because strong meat belongs to the mature who by reason of exercise have their faculties trained to discern good and evil. In other words, grow up. Second passage, 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The solution to immaturity, the solution to rising up, falling down, rising up, falling down, rising up, falling down. Hey, listen, if you have to do it that way, at least if the fact that you keep getting up again says something, but you don't want to be a spiritual yo-yo. We want to be able to walk for longer periods of time under the direction and control of the Holy Spirit. And the only solution is we have to grow up spiritually. We have to grow in grace. And there's only one way. What is grace? Everything that God has done for us because of the price Christ paid at the cross. All of the provisions that he's made for us. But how can I grow in that if I don't know what it is? So Peter says grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why going to church is important. Going to church isn't important because going to church is a good thing to do. It's important because hopefully there's somebody there who's teaching you the word. There are people there who are leading you in songs. The best songs are songs of, uh, that really give honor to God or uh, songs that are like a prayer. I love to sing songs that are like a prayer. This is my prayer to you. I'm singing it right now. That's wonderful. There are other people around you that support and encourage your spiritual growth. But the main thing is it comes down to this book right here. This is what it's all about. The more of this book I get in my soul, the stronger I'm going to be and the more I'm going to grow. So that is carnality versus spirituality. I hope that I cleared the air and didn't muddy the water for you. And if you have any questions, let me just pause this and we will answer questions. Um, just Second Peter, what did you say? <coughs> 3.18. <clears throat> 2 Peter 3.18. It's the last verse in 2 Peter. Gene, would you cop, uh, cap it off with uh, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16? Read it. How, how can a young man cleanse his way? There you go. By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Pretty well summarizes the whole class right there. Very good. Wonderful. Psalm 119, verses 9. And speaking of the book of Psalms, that's how important music is to God. He, 
It's the longest book of the Bible, and it's in the middle. And he just loves music. And yeah, the Psalms were David's heart. <clears throat> the Psalms were all written to be sung. <laughs> yeah. I had a question, Dave. Yes. I don't know if it's going to come out right, but so God's word hasn't changed. The Bible hasn't changed. <clears throat> you said like in the 70s. Why were people interpreting the Bible to where you know women had to dress a certain way and they would judge them if they didn't act a certain way? It, that's only 50 years ago. And then, you know, what do you well, it's why are we, <coughs> then why has it changed if God's word hasn't changed? And then what's it going to look like in 50 years from now? Here's what they do. They just go from one taboo to the next. But they is us. Well, it's not us. Thank you. But it, in a sense, I mean... I, I understand what you're saying. It's, it's the Christian world, but it's because of a lack of understanding of this book. Pastors go through seminary. And I've rubbed shoulders with thousands of them. And they do not even understand how to be filled with the Spirit. No one taught them, so they can't teach anyone else. And it's tragic because without a basic understanding of this, you're not going to advance. You can't advance in your spiritual life. This is why so many people get frustrated. They keep trying and trying to meet the standards. You know, if you're a good Christian, you'll do this. Or if you're a good Christian, you won't do this. <clears throat> Instead of teaching the Word so that people understand, I'm either living according to a mindset on the flesh or I'm living according to a mindset on the Spirit. How can I, I often tell people, you can't be filled with the Spirit if you don't fill yourself with this book. The filling of the Spirit and the filling of the Word of God work together. It's like epoxy. You've got to mix it together or it won't work. So when you talk about the standards, it's funny to me that Baptist preachers always quote Charles Spurgeon. Great English preacher. They call him the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon smokes cigars all the time. One of his deacons said to him, don't you think you smoke too many cigars? And he said, you'll know I'm smoking too many cigars when I have one in each hand. <laughs> Martin Luther pastors all across the country praise Martin Luther Martin Luther had a gathering in his house every night where he would gather his students around the table and he would have his wife Katie bring out the keg of beer and they would pour everybody a beer and they would sit there and drink beer and talk theology people quote them and they don't even know their life so the point I'm making is, and by the way, if you went from the United States to Germany to a pastor's conference, they all have a big stein full of beer because that's what Germans do, right? <clears throat> because people don't understand what true spirituality is, they have to make up things. So in different ages, it's something different. In different countries, it's something different. If you go to some of the countries that we go to, um, things that we say, oh, well, Christians should never do that, that's how they live. And the things that they say, well, Christians should never do that, it happens here all the time. But it's that attempt to come up with 
a spiritual standard. I failed to give you a couple of passages. I should pass these on to you because it relates to what we're talking about right here. Um, <clears throat> Ezekiel 9.4. So in Ezekiel 9.4, the angel tells another angel to pass through the city. God's getting ready to judge Jerusalem. And he says, pass through the city and put a mark on the forehead of all those who sigh over the sins of Jerusalem. In other words, the people who are really convicted by the sinfulness of their country, put a mark on their head. And then he sends another angel behind him and he says, kill everybody else. Kill them all. Goes back now to 2 Peter 2, 9. God knows how to deliver the godly and hold the wicked under judgment. The other passage is Amos 7, 7 and 8. The prophet sees, an, actually not an angel, he sees Jesus standing there and he's holding a plumb line. And what's the plumb line? The plumb line is the divider between those who are going to live and those who are going to die. The two passages have the same idea. Here's the plumb line. If you're on this side, you live. If you're on that side, you're going to die. Well, it's the same when it gets to spirituality. You are not spiritual. When I was 16, try to picture this. When I was 16, I was in the Amazon jungle in a primitive Indian tribe among some of the most gorgeous women that I've ever seen in my life. And the only article of clothing any of the women wore was that big. About the size of a sheet of paper, a little apron. That's all they wore. I'm surrounded. I'm 16 years old. I'm a normal young guy. But you know what? It's possible to be in that environment. And here's where the missionaries fail. The missionaries run in and they say, you all have to put on clothes. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is come to Christ and let Christ change you from the inside out. Missionaries went up into Canada when the, when the Europeans first started coming over here in the 1700s. There was a chief that had 12 wives. And he heard the gospel and he was captivated and he just kept coming and kept coming and saying, teach me more, teach me more, teach me more. So finally he said, I want to become a Christian. I think he probably already was because he'd already believed what he was told. <clears throat> But he didn't understand. So he said, I want to become a Christian. They said, well, you can only have one wife. Where do you read that in here? They said, you can only have one wife. You know what he did? He went and killed 11 of his wives. And he came back and he said, and, and why did he do that? Do you know why? I'll tell you what happens in third world countries. If a guy has three or four wives and casts one off, no one else will marry her. She will either become a prostitute or a slave. That's true. I've seen it. That's why he killed them. Prostitute or a slave. So he thought, rather than put them into that humiliation, I'll just kill them. He killed them and he came back to the missionaries and he said, I only have one wife. And they said, what did you do with the others? And he said, I killed them. And they said, you're damned to hell forever. Well, what happened? He became an enemy of the whites and he led his tribe in the slaughter of many, many, many people because he thought these people are absolutely crazy. In, in, in India, if a young woman is divorced, it's very unlikely anyone else will marry her because they think she's number one, she's used goods, number two, if 
she wasn't good enough for the first guy, she's probably not going to be good enough for me. And it creates a tremendous problem. I spoke to a prostitute in Ghana. <clears throat> Her name was Cecilia. And <clears throat> in the course of the conversation, I said, Cecilia, why do you do what you do? I gave her the gospel, shared the gospel with her. Whether she believed it or not, I don't know. But I said, Cecilia, why do you do what you do? And her eyes just went flat. She said, my father is blind. My mother is old. My brother and sister are hungry. And I'm making a living for them. And that was all she could do. Now, there's no doubt in my mind if she would turn to the Lord, he would open the door to other ways. But, you know, people tend to <clears throat> try to do what they have to do. So back to your question. It's ignorance of God's word that leads to all of these rules and regulations. If it doesn't say it here, it's, it's not a, a biblical standard. Don't do this. Okay, show me. Just show me. Oh, well, it's a principle that we draw out from a principle on a principle. No, I want you to show me where it tells us as believers, you can't do this. Or that you should do that or whatever. If it's not in here, it's not the issue. I have a question. Question? Yes. Uh, in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, um, it says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive yours. But if you do not forgive men, then neither will your Father forgive yours. But our sins are covered. But after we become a believer and you don't forgive, what happens? Okay, let me ask you a question. Is not forgiving a sin? Yes. If you keep on not forgiving, mm -hmm. are you laying aside... The things of the flesh? No. So how can God forgive you of something you won't even confess? Okay. That's, that's the whole point. The whole point is if you keep on in an attitude of hatred to somebody who offended you, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you're, you're essentially living in mental attitude sin, which the Bible calls murder, hatred of a brother. You're living in it, you're not confessing it, you're not correcting it, and therefore, how can God forgive you? Okay. It's, it's, our, it's not his unwillingness to forgive, it's our unwillingness <coughs> to take it to him and deal with it. Okay. Positionally, your sins would be forgiven, but on a practical fellowship level, they're not. Right. All sins are forgiven the moment we trust in Christ as far as eternal judgment is concerned. Okay. The issue of sin in our life as a believer has to do with fellowship. Right. Fellowship and agreement with God. And if you ask a believer for, for uh, forgiveness and they don't forgive, what happens to a believer when... Um, they don't forgive when you ask forgiveness. If you ask forgiveness and they don't forgive, forgive them. It's all you can do. Just forgive them. And one last question. I'm sure with my rambunctious life, there are probably a whole lot of people that haven't forgiven me. <laughs> and in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew um, 6, Jesus prays, gives an example of how to pray, and he says... 
he's praying to the Father, do not lead us into temptation. Mm -hmm. God cannot lead us into temptation. That's true. James tells us that. Yeah. It's called a litotis. It's a figure of speech. Okay. It's, it's saying, do not lead us in temptation. I know you won't lead us into temptation. It's like a figure of speech. Okay. It's kind of like uh, in Revelation where it says, it's talking about believers and it says, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Mm -hmm. it's, it's for emphasis sake, that's never going to happen. <coughs> okay. okay? We are going to celebrate the Lord's table. And that takes us back to a passage we were in earlier, 1 Corinthians 11. If you want to turn there. Just to be clear, I have no unforgiveness. <laughs> First Corinthians 11. Paul says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. I think it's always fascinating that he knew everything that was going to happen. And he didn't let it disrupt that time with those disciples. <clears throat> Verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When he says, this is my body, he's obviously using a metaphor. This represents my body or this is symbolic of my body. Verse 25, in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. New covenant as opposed to the old covenant. The old covenant was a covenant of death. The new covenant is a covenant of life. This is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, this represents the blood that I'm going to shed for you to bring you into a right relationship with God do this as often as you drink it <clears throat> in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the warning. Fits right in with what we've been talking about tonight. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's pretty awesome. How do I take these emblems in an unworthy manner? It's very simple. I'm not in fellowship with God. I have sin in my life that I've not confessed. So verse 28 says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see people sometimes and uh, it's time to celebrate the Lord's table and they say, no, I've got sin in my life. I can't do it. Why not just confess and get it over with? Just deal with it and go ahead and celebrate the Lord's table. <clears throat> the one who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What is he not discerning? He's not discerning his body. We are his body, right? I am not thinking about the body. I am actually isolated from that body of believers who are filled with the Spirit if I have sin in my life. 
For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many have died. This can be very dangerous if we take it out of fellowship. For, verse 31, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. How do we judge ourselves? Examine ourselves. If there's sin in our life, confess it, and it's taken care of. Very simple. Verse 33, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. He rebuked him earlier because the rich people would bring a huge feast and the poor people had nothing to eat and the rich people were not sharing with the poor people and that's just, Corinth was a mess. <clears throat> it's hard to imagine a worse church than Corinth. But I had one in Wikiup that I think could match them. <laughs> So we are going to celebrate the Lord's table and we're also going to obey the warning. We're going to pray <coughs> and we're going to take a moment of silent prayer so that each one of us can just go to the Lord and say, is there something in my life that's an offense to you? If so, bring it to mind. I will confess it. And if not, simply give thanks for what we have the opportunity to do. Let's pray just for a minute in silence and then I'll pray. Father, how we thank you that we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us and that when we humble ourselves before you, when we truly seek to examine our life, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, if there's anything that's wrong, we know that God the Holy Spirit will bring it to our mind. As that happens, we need to be humble and honest and simply confess that sin to you, knowing that you will always forgive and cleanse and restore us to fellowship with you. So, Father, I pray that we are all in a cleansed condition, filled with the Spirit, ready to celebrate the emblems that our Lord passed down to us as a remembrance to Him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.